this week on Life and Faith. It's one of these things that seems really basic, doesn't it? But when you try to drill down to uh, what the meaning is, uh, you start to see, I think, why it matters. Because definitions of human nature affect our hopes. Um, They affect uh, how we build society. And um, they affect who counts as human um, when we think through things like human rights or human dignity. Um, so they're really far-reaching effects um, for many aspects of our life together uh, in that sort of big question, what does it mean to be human? We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, there was a story picked up in the media earlier this year about a group of boys who were shipwrecked on an island in the Pacific for 15 months. Remember this, Justin? I have to admit, I am late to this party, but I read <laughs> up about it and it is insane. So there's these six boys from a Catholic school in Tonga going on a fishing trip in 1966 and they get shipwrecked. Uh, caught in a storm, they're on a deserted island where they're stuck for over a year before they're finally rescued by Peter Warner, who's an Australian captain of a ship. And, you know, like it's a miraculous discovery. They've, they've long been given up for dead and even funerals have been held for them. This is an insane story, Simon. <laughs> it is. That detail, the, the having had funerals already for these boys was pretty, pretty, you know, that stood out to me. You can imagine that and their families and so on. But, you know, these these boys weren't the first to be bored at school, but in trying to break that border, my goodness, they got themselves into trouble. So they, they stole a boat from a fisherman that they didn't like. Now, that detail is important later. Uh, and they wanted to take off for Fiji. I'm not sure the distance there, you? but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a way if you're on a, a pretty small boat. There were six boys. The eldest was 16. The youngest was 13. Now here's the thing: when they're shipwrecked, they get on, they get onto this island, and they they do all this sort of stuff. So they make a pact that they're not going to argue. They realise this is really important. They set up this sort of commune with a food garden and water storage, and I'm told a sort of a makeshift weights room, a badminton court. They had a chicken pens. They had this permanent fire going. They had rosters to doing all the different duties and so on. And when they inevitably did have some quarrels, they organized a kind of a cool down spot. It's like the chill out you know, room or whatever. Uh, and then they said, you know, they had to apologize. They, they began days with a song and a prayer. Um, one of the kids broke his leg and they, the people who tell this story talk about how well they you know helped him and put it all together. And then after being rescued and returned to their homes, they were arrested and thrown into jail for stealing the boat in the first place. <laughs> Not quite the homecoming they were probably hoping for. Um, <laughs> no. But obviously this is the thing that, that people jumped on in the media, right? And it's this story. And it comes from a book written by a Dutch historian, Rutger Bregman. And you've been reading this book, Simon. It's called Humankind, A Hopeful History. Yes, I have. Now, Bregman tells this story in the book as a counterpoint to the famous novel by William Golding, The Lord of the, of the Flies. I'm sh- 
presuming you, like everyone else, did you read that at school, Justin? Do you know, I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I did. But I know the, um, I've seen the Simpsons parody, so, uh, yeah. you know, it's jogging my memory. These boys crash land on a desert island where there are no grown-ups, and it's it starts off as a bit of an adventure story, but it goes terribly wrong. Uh, and it's become a kind of analogy about human nature. Once you remove the skin of civilization, we are all savages underneath. And we're going to, like, turn on each other. And, of course, it has been parodied by The Simpsons. <laughs> we should be safe in here. They're trapped in the cave! Move in for the kill! Oh, figs. Right, well, that's The Simpsons and their take on Lord of the Flies. It is a well-used trope, isn't it? The, the original, of course, though, is all about the darkness of the human heart. There are plenty of books and films like that. Uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness springs to mind. But Bregman says that The Lord of the Flies is almost a textbook of what is known as veneer theory. And that's the idea that civilization is this thin veneer. It's controlling our baser elements. And all it takes is a, a disaster of some kind and the wheels will rapidly come off. It's a pretty harsh look, I guess, at what kids, humans are really like. And so... Bregman is challenging that that idea with his story of the boys from Tonga. It seems point for point directly contradicting what Golding is saying really, right? I mean, Golding's point is that this is who we really are, that nature is red in tooth and claw, and that's the same for all of us as well. Yeah, that's right. He's putting this forward as the real Lord of the Flies story to support his case that most humans are, are pretty decent and we're not unrelentingly driven by selfishness and cruelty but we are cooperative beings so he's appealing to our our better natures if you like and what do you make of that simon is it convincing at all to you i find it half convincing so there's a lot to like about what bregman's saying in this book and, and the the lord of the flies story is just one small part of that of course now he thinks that catastrophes actually bring out the best in people and he says the evidence for this is routinely ignored by the media. And he, he's, he's making the case that a grim view of humanity produces what it claims. If you believe that most people aren't trustworthy, well, that's how we'll treat each other and you kind of get what you expect. He thinks, uh, and he is at pains to say this, he thinks we do have a good and a bad side. Right? He's, he's, he's trying to acknowledge that. But, he reckons, we have a strong preference for the good and if more people believe that, we'd get more of it. Uh, you know, fair enough, perhaps. And he describes people in World War II suffering under the Blitz uh, or in Germany in the similar circumstances, the Allied bombing. And he talks about how when you look at what actually happened, these communities band together, they help each other out and they find ways to survive together. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because last week's podcast on World War II, which is well worth a listen, mm. did have a sense of this as well, that the scale of the conflict of World War II, this huge confrontation between good and evil, there's something about that which really galvanised people to respond collectively in order to beat back the menace. Yeah, and there's an, I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. I'm left, though, wanting to say, uh, you know, okay, yeah, but this is taking place, remember, in a massive war that's responsible for the deaths of around 60 million people. I mean, these cooperative people who are getting together under the bombing and doing some good things 
are being bombed by other people and you can't escape that reality. So while Bregman, I think, does a service in telling us some of the great human achievements and focusing on those, the admirable qualities, the overall picture still felt inadequate to me. It didn't seem to account for all the really obvious struggles and injustices that are part of human condition. You know, when he says all that kind of stuff, I'm, I've got to ask the question, is he living in a bubble? Right? Like, I mean, I think all of us in the West, I would include myself, we lead fairly middle class lives, 21st century West. You know, we're kind of protected from the horrors of history, really. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe people would read it and feel that. I'd feel a bit patronizing to say it. I mean, as you say, we're all in a, some form of a bubble, but he's an historian. He's, he's tried to tackle this in a sober way. It's just that I seem to come at it from a completely different uh, original place. He says in the book that the tradition of understanding human beings is essentially selfish is supported by all the great thinkers down through the ages. And he lists them off. He says Thucydides, Augustine, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Luther, Calvin, Burke, Bentham, Nietzsche, Freud, the American founding fathers, all these people felt that essentially humans, yes, we've got some good parts, but we're kind of flawed in this sort of selfish way. And I, I was just left thinking, well, there's some big names there. We perhaps should pay attention to them. So you're really and, kind. See, I'm there going, is is Bregman going to overturn? Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm an apologist for the dead white men of history, okay? But, you know, no, I just think it's that. worth pointing that out. <laughs> but look, he's arguing for a realistic view of our history and he's using psychology and evolutionary biology to make a case for a positive picture. Yeah, it's funny, Simon, when you list all them off, they're all human sciences, right? But it, it does occur to me that these aren't the extent of human knowledge. Um, I'm a big fan of a line that Old Testament scholar Ian Proven says. It goes something like, every cosmology and theology implies an anthropology. So this means that what you believe about ultimate reality shapes our understanding of the human and how humans should live together and what common life we should pursue together. And, you know, even if you only want to take that insight as a sociology of religion kind of perspective, rather than it being a divine truth that you have to live by, I feel like it still adds a lot to the discussion that maybe is being left out in, in all these other human sciences that, are, that he's drawing on. Yes, and I, I thought what was missing here was a theological perspective. I really did. I felt there was a gap there. So I called in for some help from Beth Felker-Jones. Now, she is a professor of theology at Wheaton College in Illinois and got her in to talk about Christianity's understanding of the essential nature of human beings. I, I started off the interview by asking her why the understanding of human nature at its core is an important question. You know, why does it matter so much? It's one of these things that seems really basic, doesn't it? But when you try to drill down to uh, what the meaning is, uh, you start to see, I think, why it matters. Because definitions of human nature affect our hopes. Um, they affect uh, how we build society. And um, they affect who counts as human um, when we think through things like human rights or human dignity. Um, so there are really far-reaching effects um, for many aspects of our life together uh, in that sort of big question, what does it mean to be human? Mm. And, and what have 
in terms of our nature, human nature, what we're like, what have been the, some of the most influential answers to that question? Yeah. As a Christian, um, I see in the history of Western thought, right, um, Christian answers to that question uh, deeply affecting even post-Christian um, uh, sectors of, of thinking about that uh, today. And so um, mm-hmm. basic beliefs uh, from the Christian and Jewish scriptures, right, that humans are created in the image of God, uh, have created um, uh, ideas that we have about human dignity um, and the sharedness of human nature. Um, if you jump forward then into the modern period, a big, a big jump, uh, you get uh, much more scientific understandings of human nature, right? Nature, uh, accounts that would focus on our materiality, uh, which is very important. Um, and you also get more psychological accounts of human nature, right? Yeah. Um, and all of those can be brought together in interesting ways, I think. Mm. So we've been kind of bouncing off this book by Rutger Bregman uh, that makes a, a case for a very positive view of human nature. I mean, it's not you know, unrelentingly positive, but it's very positive. And he says we need a different story to the one we've been living in, something more hopeful, he says. What does that sound like to you? I'm not asking you to comment on the book itself, but what, you know, what, what does that sound like in your ear? Yeah, well, it comes, I think, out of modernity, right? Um, so important Western uh, thinkers want to suggest just this about us as human beings, um, that, that we're good um, and that we can hope for good things. And as a Christian thinker, I see that connecting, again, to really uh, big picture things that Christians have wanted to say over the centuries um, about human nature. Uh, that goodness rests uh, for Christians in the fact that we're created in the image of a good God. But Christians also have more we want to say uh, than just that. And I think often modern theories, uh, which are very positive about human nature, don't give us the more there. Yes, yeah, so you'd feel like there's something else. So let's stick with the positive for a moment. It is good, isn't it, to appeal to at least our better natures. There's something in that. Absolutely. Um, and for me, uh, as a believer in Christ, that reflect that is is rooted most deeply in the fact that uh, God has created us good, right, with good purposes. Um, we're not just pointless kind of animals floating about in a void, right? We we're intentional creatures, um, and God has good purposes for our existence and our work and our society and um, our last ends as well. Mm. Yeah. So. So you've you've talked about the ways in which uh, Christianity might cohere with that, the positivity about human nature. That's that's a really important part, isn't it? Um, what what about where it differs, or what? You know, I think part of what you're saying there was this: there's too much missing when you when you only talk about the the positive uh, elements. Yeah. So a basic Christian doctrine about being human says, yes, we're good. We're good because we're created in the image of God. But also at the same time, uh, we are sinners, right? And Christians sometimes use language for this, which I think sounds strange to um, a lot of contemporary ears, right? Fallen nature or sinful nature or original sin. Um, None of those phrases are meant to mean that we're not good. Um, They're meant to point to the fact that in our goodness, something has gone desperately wrong, right? And I think if we try to talk about being human without accounting for what has gone wrong, uh, a whole variety of of further things can go wrong, um, including 
calling things good, which are not good, right, which are unjust um, and oppressive and hurtful in other ways. Um, so for, for Christian thinking, it's a both and, right, created good, but also um, groaning under the condition of sin, which is a very theology teacher sort of thing to say. Uh, that is, something has gone wrong. Life and Faith from CPX, and we're talking with Beth Jones from Wheaton College in Illinois. I wanted to ask her about sin, which is a very strange word for people today. So I asked Beth, what does she mean when she uses that word? Yeah, it means so many things, but um, we could think of it as everything that is wrong um, with the world and with us as, as human beings. So I think um, sometimes we hear that word sin and we think it just means a list of things that individuals should not do, right? Do not, yeah, do right. not, do not. Um, mm. But a, a big picture kind of theological account uh, wants to look much wider than that. Sin is individual, but it's also collective or corporate, right? Um, it describes things that individuals do wrong, but it also describes the way things go wrong uh, in a bigger picture, in systems, in nations, in institutions, it describes a situation in which relationships have been broken, right? Uh, in which human relationships are broken uh, between humans and humans, uh, sometimes between the human being and uh, his or her own self, um, and between humans and God. Yeah. I think when you frame it like that, people can surely relate to that. They only have to look around their, their own house, look in the mirror, look at their own lives to see the imperfections that are there. That's essentially what you're talking about, isn't it? The, the relational aspect to all of those things is the key to perhaps understanding the concept. I think so. And it can be a relief to recognize that, right? Um, if we're in a cultural context, context which presses us to act as though nothing is wrong, um, as, though, as though we have achieved sort of a flawless life, um, it can be a real relief to say, no, <laughs> um, th th things are really difficult here. Um, things have gone wrong for me personally and uh, with society at large in ways that we really um, long for healing. Mm. Yeah, the, the endless positivity can get a bit, bit of a become a burden as well, right? Absolutely. And another way to say that is just to say evil is real, right? Um, things are not as they're supposed to be. Um, and when I look at the way things are, I'm, I'm glad to be able to acknowledge that um, we hope for something better. It's true though, isn't it, that the church over the centuries has sometimes been guilty of, of an overly negative picture of humankind, would, would you not think? Indeed. And now I think, you know, the church at its best has always held together the fact of human goodness with the fact of human brokenness. Um, but some, in some times, in some places, brokenness has been overemphasized. Um, I teach college students who've mostly been raised in some kind of Christian context and often, um, at least in some of those contexts, they've only heard we're broken um, and they yeah. haven't heard that that really important truth that also that human creatures are good um, and that we have good things to do in this world and that yeah. we matter. We matter to God and to one another. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned briefly a moment ago the concept of original sin. Uh, what does that have to contribute to this discussion? Because it's not a popular idea, but it's very often misunderstood, isn't it? 
there's a whole long sort of history of doctrine here, right, that, that I won't bore anyone with. But I, I think what it contributes at a basic level uh, is the historic um, and, and continued Christian teaching um, that this, this fact of brokenness applies to all of us humans. Right. Um, it's original in the sense that it's uh, it belongs to the the whole of the human condition uh, where we come with it uh, from the start. That doesn't mean that we think babies are evil monsters or something. Right. Um, that's not what the Christian teaching of original sin is. But it is a way to say this encompasses all human beings. Um, it's a condition we're in together. Um, it's not just me as an individual doing this or that uh, poorly. Uh, it's the fact that we're trapped together in, in a big picture set of systems and problems um, that, that no individual human is separate mm. from. Well, now we're getting theological. I wonder, what about this notion of total depravity? That's a pretty awful sounding uh, doctrine. It does sound awful, doesn't it? And it's certainly gone out of style in certain uh, certain Christian circles, even those that have most often liked to use that language historically. Um, the language total depravity is language that a certain set of Protestants start to use uh, in the early modern period uh, to emphasize the fact or the, the belief, the Protestant belief, um, that all human beings are unable to fix what's wrong with them on their own. Right, so total depravity um, should not, in any good theology, it should not mean that we're trash. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. It doesn't mean that there's nothing good in us. What it means uh, for classic Protestant belief is that we're totally unable to save ourselves right? and thus in need um, of a relationship with God and a relationship with Jesus uh, as a healer. Um, and so many of those kinds of uh, historic Protestant preachers want to say this is actually good news. Right? It sounds like bad news, um, but it's good news because it means um, you cannot fix your own situation, but God wants to offer healing to you. Yeah, it's, it's not doesn't sit super well with um, very modern conceptions of who we are and what we are and our potential and this sort of thing. But it, but it's interesting that you say it's sort of almost, you know, it's bad news before it's good news, but definitely it is good news. It's a re sort of a relief in a way. The uh, preacher John Wesley, who's one of my favorites, uh, says, know your disease, know your cure, right? And he said, he sees there that total depravity is the disease um, and the cure is what God wants to offer to all human beings, right? In relationship and healing. What do you imagine might be the reason for the resistance against that type of way of conceiving of the human person? Because I think people do resist it these days. Where's, what's the source of that? I think there are a number of possible sources. One is um, what you mentioned earlier, which is that some in some places and sometimes the church has overemphasized um, teaching about sin at the expense of the positive teaching um, of what the good things God wants for human beings and the healing that is offered to us. And so people have rightly reacted, I think, against that kind of mistaken overemphasis or, or failure to hold together the, the wholeness of um, good Christian teaching. Um, I also think it can well be a sign of our brokenness. Um, our freshman students, uh, where I teach, all read uh, St. Augustine's Confessions, which is, of course, a uh, great uh, work of the Western canon, right? Um, in that uh, book in which he tells his life story, Augustine basically says that he thinks he didn't want to say he was sinful, 
because he wanted to be able to take care of things himself, right? Uh, but he yeah. thinks he resisted it because of his own pride. Um, and that may well be true of many of us as well, right? We, mm. we have a lot at stake um, in preserving our, our public image um, as people who have it together. And to say out loud, I don't have it together. Um, I need somebody else to help me here is, is a hard thing. Hard for Augustine in the late fourth century, hard for us now, I think. Yeah, great to get some lessons from that far back, isn't it? And and I wondered if you'd mind commenting on you know, you're doing you're doing theology and you're thinking through these things at, at that level. Ha, to what degree does this the Christian conception of the human person ring true for your own life and experiences? You're able to comment on that. I think rather than maybe any Christian teaching, including this one, ringing true for my life, the experience is sort of the reverse. Um, the teachings have helped me to understand my life. Right? So it, it doesn't start with my life and then go to those teachings. Um, but the teachings have come to me sort of from the outside as a surprise uh, to help me understand things that I wouldn't have had a framework to explain. Um, so as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can and, and would and do explain my whole life in that framework. But I don't know if it's because I could have seen that on my own. Um, I sort of doubt it. Um, I think it's because God is at work to help me understand my story as a part of God's story. Um, and so I can make sense of things that I might not have had the categories to make sense of in that way. Uh, within the framework that I operate in as a Christian. Certainly, I understand myself as a sinner um, and as good and beloved by God. Now, I'll just jump in here. Beth Jones didn't know about the alternative Lord of the Flies story that we mentioned earlier. So I told her all about that and I asked her what she made of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like a delightful story. I'd love to know more details. I, I think the facts of history are that sometimes uh, human beings are great at loving one another, and sometimes we're, we're frankly terrible about it. Um, and you can see some of both in any century, in any, in any continent. Um, no one story by itself gives us a full account of human nature. But I think as we look at the big picture, we do see that big picture. Uh, that that held togetherness of our goodness and our brokenness. Um, and whichever piece is more obvious in any given story, goodness and brokenness are both always the truth. That's Beth Felker-Jones from Wheaton College in Illinois. Now, Simon, coming back to Rutger Bregman and his Humankind book, he uses heaps of evidence to make his case, doesn't he? And can you tell me what his strongest argument is, that humans are essentially good? He does make a strong case in places. Absolutely. And marshals lots of evidence for this. But for me, it's always yes and no to that question that I had in mind or that he has in mind. I mean, Shakespeare, of course, gave a good rendition of this, didn't he? And I wrote this down, Justine. I'm going to read it out. It's from Hamlet. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? I love that. I was brought back down to earth pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that though. It requires us to have a real double vision, I guess, of humanity, like seeing two things at once. 
there's this magnificence and that is undeniable but there's also this frailty and this feebleness right this this dustiness yes i mean this seems to me to be the truth Bregman talks about studies that show that most people in most places believe things are getting worse, but the reality is the opposite. And we've talked about this before on Life and Faith. I think there's a point there. There are, of course, huge improvements in eradicating extreme poverty, uh, crime rates, famine, deaths in natural disasters. Planes don't crash as much as they, you know, they once did, thank goodness. Um, but he says it's the news that focuses on the exceptional and the violent and the extreme that gives you this really skewed impression. Now, I think that's a good point. Uh, many things have improved. Life is better for many people. But we're left with other realities too, like statistics that tell us that there are more slaves today than there were in the 17th century. There's you know, terrible rates of suicide and loneliness and depression and anxiety and these sorts of things. All isn't completely well, even when we've solved a lot of these problems of supply and comfort. You know, I have to admit, um, when I listen to the, into this kind of discussion, I, I do get frustrated that there's like an insistence that we have to come down on one side of the question, like things are getting better, full stop. Because surely things are getting better and worse at the same time. It's always been like that. It's always going to be like that. I, I always think it's a it's a both and rather than an either or kind of matter. And I don't think to say that is like an academic cop out. I think it's realistic. So anyway, I've said my piece. What were you left with after reading Humankind, A Hopeful History? Yeah, I sort of felt a mixture of encouragement, but ultimately also dissatisfaction. Because I reckon we need a really full account of human nature that covers, yes, all the glory and the wonder, the preciousness of human life, but also our brokenness and our frustrations and failures. I guess it made me think about faith and why we seek transcendence. We, seek, we do seek something, maybe someone, outside of ourselves, something beyond us, because we sense that we actually do need that kind of help. So maybe the best hope for humankind lies in that direction. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not send it on to someone you know who might appreciate it? And also leave us a rating or review. It really helps get the word out. Next week. I feel like providing that, that cultural base for the students... Um, allows them to, to feel safe within the school environment. Um, it allows them to be able to decipher their purpose or talk about their purpose. Um, it, it allows them to see role models and mentors and people around them who, who can help them unfold the educational process because it can be quite daunting, especially when our kids are coming from families who haven't had um, family members go through high school or, you know, who haven't had a really good school retention rate or who are suffering a, a lot of the um, disadvantages um, that a lot of our Aboriginal communities are faced with, you know. Like, for me, having experienced a lot of those disadvantages, um, it, it allows me to see within my students what role I can play to support them through the experiences that they're going through so that they can feel a sense of, you know, there is a way to get through it and there are people here to support and guide me and I'm not alone.